Church, if you could please open up to the book of Micah. The book of Micah, turn to chapter 6. We're going to finish up our study of this book this morning, looking at chapters 6 and 7 together. As you turn there this morning, I want to paint a picture for you. We've all seen those courtroom shows, such as Judge Judy, where there's a scene, there's a judge, there's two people maybe uh, in lawsuit against one another, or maybe there's a courtroom scene where someone has committed a crime and someone is on trial. Well, imagine that you were the one being tried in a case. You've done something wrong, and you know it. You're just waiting to see what the sentence is going to be. You know you're guilty. The case is presented. It's a slam dunk. You know you're guilty. Everyone else knows you're guilty, but then you hear a miracle. You hear the word innocent. You can imagine what everyone in that room might think, including yourself. Whoa, what's going on here? Is, is this a joke? Is there some kind of mistake? What's got, I don't deserve this. What's going on? This scene, it's not a perfect illustration, but it describes well what we're about to see in Micah chapter 6 and 7. It describes well our state before God and what it feels like or what it ought to feel like to receive his mercy. So here's our main idea this morning, short and sweet. We don't deserve God's mercy. We don't. We do not deserve God's mercy. That's our main point. As a reminder, our series is titled, Who is Like Our God? It's a word play from Micah's name, which means who is like Jehovah or who is like Yahweh. In chapter 1, we saw a holy God ready to judge Israel's idolatry. In chapter 2, we saw a just God who puts a price on rebellion. In chapter 3, we saw an honorable God who expects and rules with integrity. In chapter 4, we saw a redemptive God who redeems the broken before destroying the obstinate. Then in chapter 5, we saw a mighty God who powerfully delivers his people through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now we come to the end, chapters 6 and 7, where we will see a merciful God who can save even the worst of sinners. So hopefully you are in Micah chapter 6. This morning, I want to ask you to stand together for the reading of God's word. We will read Micah chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. Let's pray. O oh, holy God in heaven, would you please open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to receive your perfect word this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, church. You can be seated. So these first two verses picture well the courtroom scene I just painted. In this passage, not just in verses 1 through 2, we see a lot of courtroom language and imagery. Man is supposed to make his case, and then God is going to make his case against man. And we see this repeated phrases or words, mountains and hills, has continued throughout this book. It kind of symbolizes the high places of earth. But it could also mean that Israel is to make her case before creation. 
It's almost as if creation is sitting in judgment over man. And if you think about it, everything in all of creation always exists in total submission to God's will. Jesus spoke and the storm calmed. God spoke and creation began. Everything always obeys God in his creation except us. We are the part of his creation where God commands and we actually say no. So it's as though man is making his case to all of obedient creation and trying to justify why he does not. Therefore, it's fitting that creation might be called into witness against him. Either way, however you see this, man is being asked something simple. Explain your actions. Make a defense. Here's what we're going to see this morning. In chapter 6, God is going to reveal certain pieces of evidence, almost like in a courtroom, to show that his righteous judgment against them is well-deserved. And then in chapter 7, we're going to see something totally unexpected and undeserved, mercy. So chapter 6, God's righteous judgment is deserved. In presenting this case against Israel, God is going to give two lines of evidence. The first thing he does is he points to himself. So if you're taking notes here, under point one, we are not righteous despite God's acts. We've read verses 1 through 2. Listen to verses 3 through 5. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. In this first line of evidence, God shows that Israel's actions make no sense in light of God's actions. In light of what God has done for Israel, that she would act this way makes no sense. He does this by going back to God's faithful works in the life and the history of Israel, pointing in verse 4 back to Egypt. But I want to go back a little bit further. I want us to think all the way back to creation. When God created man and woman, his intent was for them to bear God's image to the world. The whole world would see them and see the image of God. But at the fall, sin is introduced, and now man does not really bear God's image as he ought to. However, God has a plan from the beginning. So he chose Israel to be a special vessel. To be a family line that one day this special offspring would come from, Jesus Christ. But Israel was more than just a vessel for the Messiah. Israel was also to demonstrate to the surrounding nations, this is what our God looks like. So God gave them laws. He said, here's how you were to function in the land that you were going into. This is how all the nations will know that I am God. Israel was supposed to bear God's image in a special way way because she was in relationship with him in a special way. But instead of bearing that image, Israel continued to sin, even though God kept showing himself faithful. Even though in verse 4, God saves his people from, from Egypt. Even though in verse 5, God protected and delivered his people as they entered into the promised land. 
This verse describes their entry into that land. Every step of the way, God protected them and provided for them just so that they would know what kind of God he is. Look in verse 5 here at the very end. He says, remember these things that happened that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. So God was revealing to himself to them in the way that he took care of them and treated them. So simply by seeing and benefiting from God's acts, Israel has no excuse for her sin, yet she sinned anyway. So many times we think of the Bible simply as a list of do's and don'ts, but it really is so much more than that. It certainly contains a bunch of do's, and it certainly contains a bunch of don'ts, but this is more than just a moral guidebook. Many in our secular culture would want to view it that way, and they would want us to view it that way, but that's not just what this is. If it is, it falls short, because there are no moral people. We all fall short. If this sole purpose of the book is to teach us and force us to do the right thing, then we have to say this book fails. But that's not the sole purpose of this book. The Bible exists to reveal God to us, to show us something about God and consequently about ourselves. And the ultimate image of God that this book reveals to us is found in Jesus Christ. Following Jesus is more than simply doing the things that he tells us to do, though that certainly is included. It also means that we study his life and imitate him. See how he acted. Ask questions about, well, why did he respond this way to these people? Well, why is he doing this? What kind of person was this? There might be some things that we can't point to a specific command to do them, but we look at who Jesus is and say, well, Jesus did this type of thing. We ought to imitate that. We mimic his compassion. We model his gentleness. His righteousness is reflected in our righteous acts. But we're also reminded here that even then, even though we have such a perfect example for us to follow in Jesus Christ, we are still unable. We have the gospel accounts, we have Jesus' teaching, we have his moral living. We should be able to follow this, but we don't. And when we fall short, it isn't because Jesus' example just wasn't good enough. It's not Jesus' fault, it's our fault. Just like Israel, we have no excuse. God has acted for us by sending his son to die for our sins, yet we still struggle. It simply goes to show how truly unrighteous we are. We cannot do it. And for this reason, we can't forget that Jesus is more than just a moral example. He's more than just a good teacher. He's a sacrifice. So God's first line of evidence, Israel ought to be righteous because she has God's righteous acts to look to, yet she is not. God's second line of evidence in chapter 6 has to do with his explicit instructions. So number two, we aren't righteous despite God's requirements. So we aren't righteous despite his acts. Now we aren't righteous despite his requirements. Pick back up with me in, in verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? 
Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Even if God's acts weren't abundantly clear, we can't say that about his law. We can see the words on the pages. There might be conversations to be had about how Christians are to approach the Old Testament. But what we can't say is what the Bible does or doesn't say. It's here. It's written down for us. And it is to be studied diligently. So for this reason, Micah asks some rhetorical questions that might not initially be so obvious. In light of our sin, how are we to come before the Lord? How should we approach him in light of all of this? What are we to do? How should we humble ourselves in sorrow? How, what should repentance look like? What, should we bring God a gift? And what should that look like? How should we worship him and glorify him? What gift might appease him the most? Verse 6, is it having high quality sacrifices and burnt offerings? To give a modern example, is it having a choir that can hit all the right notes? Is it having a church that can sing to the nines? Verse 7, is it the quantity of sacrifices, thousands of sacrifices, or thousands of rivers of anointing oil? Is it that we have so many people in our church? Our worship is powerful because we have a thousand people here. No, God has made it clear what he really wants. Not that those things are wrong. But God has made it clear. Verse 8, do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God. This is what God wants. This is what he requires. Listen to that. What does the Lord require of you? It is not an option. It's not a maybe. It's not if it's convenient. It is a requirement. The word kindness here, when I memorized this verse long ago, it was in another translation, and it wasn't the word kindness, otherwise I might just look over this word. It's the word mercy when I memorized it. Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. So I went and looked. There's a Hebrew word here for the word kindness. It's the Hebrew word hesed. And actually in my Bible, I think it gives a footnote that this is also translated steadfast love. It may be in yours as well. So do justice, love steadfast kindness. Steadfast love. Love, steadfast love. This word hesed is most often used of God, not us. It describes his steadfast love towards Israel, though Israel is constantly breaking the covenant. And it pops up all throughout Scripture to describe how God treats us. So I think mercy, kindness, they both describe the word well. It's a kindness that we don't deserve. That's what God's steadfast love is. It's a love that does not give up even when the receiving party doesn't deserve it. Steadfast love. 
We get to practice this all the time in our families. I don't think there's a family here that gets along perfectly all the time, even around Christmas time. We get to practice this steadfast love, and it's difficult. This is the love of God for us, and it is what we are required to show. So what does God require? Simply do what is right, show mercy to others who don't, and walk humbly with God along the way. These really sum up both the Old and the New Testaments. Think about the Ten Commandments. These are so fundamentally moral and simple and clear that we have used them as one of the building blocks of our modern system of justice. It's simple. Think of what it means to turn to God for salvation. Faith is walking humbly with God. Repentance is turning away from unrighteousness so that you might walk justly. And mercy is simply the consequence of being shown mercy. You'd think that if these instructions were so clear, if we were given exactly what we ought to do, that we would do it, right? Right? But we don't. I don't. Just like Israel, we do not. Now, in light of that, listen to God's case against Israel. Verse 9, the voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. God's righteousness requires that when his righteous requirements aren't met with obedience, they will be met with judgment. That's what God's righteousness demands. That's what his holiness demands. This is why he begins verse 9 Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. This is why in verses 14 through 16, Israel shall eat and not be satisfied. There will be hunger within her. She will store away, but it will all waste away. She won't preserve. She will sow, but she will not reap because she is disobeyed. So now that the case is made, we see that God's people have God's acts to look upon You shouldn't be unrighteous. You get to look at the holy God. You benefit from his works. We also see that God commands, and they have his commands to listen to. They have the law, and they still obey. They have no excuse or response for their sin other than, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. I have your example. I have your law. I've disobeyed. The most healthy disposition anyone can take in life is humble acknowledgement of one simple fact. I'm guilty. You will do untold harm and damage to yourself and those around you by thinking that you're not. You are. I am. That's how I know you are. We're all guilty. We must acknowledge our guilt before the Lord. In fact, verse 9 suggests that everything that follows is sound wisdom to fear God's name. 
It is sound wisdom to learn to see yourself and your actions as God sees them. God doesn't measure you against any other person. He's not going to measure me against any one of you and say, okay, Garrett, let's see how well you did. God measures you against himself, his own actions, and his own requirements. Therefore, it's wise for us to do the same, to not compare ourselves with others. Well, at least I do this better than they do. Who cares? They're not your measurement. God is. And that's how we'll be measured on the day of judgment. Now, thankfully, this isn't the end, or else we wouldn't be gathered together singing praises. We would be weeping. Though God's judgment is totally deserved because of our unrighteousness, chapter 7, God grants us mercy. So number two this morning, God's righteous mercy is undeserved. So his judgment is deserved, but his mercy is undeserved. Now chapter 7, before I read here, gives us an unexpected beacon of hope. But it doesn't start that way. It starts at the very beginning here in chapter 7, verse 1. Woe is me. This is where we should expect to start. He's going to describe, following this, the pervasiveness of sin. But despite that pervasive sinfulness, we're going to see that God is merciful and God is faithful. So under point two, number one, our sin is pervasive, yet God is merciful. Listen to these 10 verses at the beginning of chapter 7. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil, to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman, of your punishment, has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I've sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. Verse 2 summarizes the whole point made in these 10 verses. There is no one upright among mankind. Israel's not the only one who treasures wickedness. We all do. Israel is not the only one who does evil well. We all do. 
Verse 3 points out that evil desire is deeply embedded in our souls. Whenever it comes out of us, it's like we are weaving ourselves together with it. Therefore, punishment comes in verse 4, and there's none who can help. Other people can't help because they are all just as wicked as we are. Mother and father turned against one another, husband and wife, brother and sister. But then verse 7 hits, As for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. And then in verses 8 through 10, because Micah looks to the Lord and bears his indignation, or to use the language from a moment ago, because he owns his guilt before the Lord, because he says, I'm guilty, God is not a God of judgment to Micah, but a God of salvation. And I'm going to be very straight with you in this moment. This ought not to make sense. We shouldn't read this and say, well, of course. This makes no sense. There's a holy, righteous God who the guilty party, if they will just look to him, he will say, innocent, forgiven. But I'm guilty, good, innocent. This should not make sense to us. I'm guilty, but I'm placing my hope in the righteous judge of the universe. That makes no sense. My hope is in bearing God's indignation. That makes no sense. Mercy does not make sense. Judgment makes sense. That's what we deserve. If mercy makes more sense than judgment... It's because our view of God's holiness and our view of our own sinfulness, they are both far too small. You don't understand God's holiness if this makes sense. And you don't understand your own sinfulness. The late R.C. Sproul once commented about how we almost never ask the right question when it comes to tragedy striking in life. We always ask, why did this have to happen? Why me? Why now? Why do I deserve this? But you know the question we never ask. We never ask on those days that we wake up without cancer, why not me? Why don't I have cancer today? Or when we go through a full day without being in a car accident, you know what we don't ask, why didn't I get in a wreck today? Why didn't that happen? We don't ask that question. To make his point, he gives an illustration in his, he wrote a book, uh, The Holiness of God. I'll leave it up here. Uh, one of, uh, just a terrific book. I highly, highly commend it to you. But I'm going to read the example he gives in his book because he makes it so well. On 124 he says this, In two decades of teaching theology, I have had countless students ask me why God doesn't save everybody. Only once did a student come to me and say, there's something I just can't figure out. Why did God redeem me? We're not really surprised that God has redeemed us. Somewhere deep inside, in the secret chambers of our hearts, we harbor the notion that God owes us his mercy. What amazes us is justice, not grace. We're amazed when God shows himself to be a God of justice. Why would God do that, we might think? We expect mercy, though it is not owed us. 
The point isn't that we shouldn't acknowledge hard times. The point is that we've somehow come to believe and expect mercy as the baseline. And then justice just if we reject that. When that's not reality at all. God does not owe us anything, especially mercy. It is completely and totally undeserved. And yet the scriptures teach us that he is the God of our salvation. Isn't this spectacular? God has sent Jesus Christ to atone for our sin and grant his people totally, completely undeserved mercy. You don't deserve mercy. I don't deserve mercy. But God is giving us mercy. This is terrific news. We don't deserve that. We should be the ones crushed under the weight of our sin, but we're not. Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who trusts Jesus in faith, who turns to him, repenting from their sin and follows him, will be saved. Ephesians 2, 8, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is only because we serve a God of mercy that Christians can freely, happily, and joyfully acknowledge and own their sin. Because in Christ, all of our sin is forgiven. I can tell you right now that I'm a gossip because I'm forgiven and I'm repenting from that. I can tell you that I'm a liar because I am forgiven and repenting from that. I can tell you whatever I struggle with because I'm forgiven and I'm repenting from that, just like you are. Confession is an ointment for the soul, for the Christian. We don't have to bear the weight of our sin anymore because Christ bears it for us. In fact, without confession of sin, there is really no forgiveness. Now, I'm not suggesting, like some do, that we must confess every individual sin in order to be forgiven of them. And all those unconfessed sins will still have to be paid for one day. That's not what I'm suggesting. Rather, what I mean is that someone who cannot confess their sin cannot be saved from it. Oh, I just can't confess this. I just can't admit this is wrong. I just can't vocalize this. It's like the alcoholic that can't admit that he has a problem. He will never turn for help. The reason Christians happily own their own sin is because they are forgiven and being saved from it. So confession is both an act of acknowledgement, I am admitting something, and of repentance. I am turning from this. We acknowledge my sin and the need of forgiveness, and then we pursue repentance from it by naming it. Though our sin is pervasive, God is merciful. But then second, our sin is pervasive, yet God is faithful. Pick back up with me in verse 11. A day for the building of your walls. In that day, the boundary shall be far extended. In that day, they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, and from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. But the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds." Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old, 
As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. This final portion of Micah turns again to the end times, just like in chapter 4. That's where they were first mentioned. And if you'll remember, there were these references to that day. We see them repeated here, starting in verse 11. A day for the building of your walls. In that day, the boundaries shall be far extended. In that day, they will come to you. So we see a rehashing of the that day from chapter 4. All the godless nations will be nothing. They will come out of their strongholds in fear and trembling before the Lord. They will be turning towards God in this new Jerusalem. This information isn't new in the book of Micah. So why do we have it brought back up here? Verse 20 gives us our clue. The last verse of the book. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. God is showing that despite Israel's pervasive sin, he is still faithful. He is merciful, yes. Why is he merciful? Because he is faithful. He has made a promise and he will keep it. His promises never fail. We don't have to worry as Christians whether or not our sins are truly forgiven because we have his precious promises. We can know that they are because God is faithful. In verses 18 and 19 here, the end of the book, there's this literary device here that they use in Hebrew that we don't use, I've mentioned before, called a chiasm. And the analogy I gave before was of a sandwich that's opened up, and you've got the bread and the bread, and then cheese and cheese, and then lettuce and lettuce, tomato, tomato, and then you put the meat in the middle and sandwich it together. It's almost like a mirror image of itself. We see that same thing here, and we tend to not see this because we don't use this anymore. But I bring it up for a reason this morning. If you're familiar with poetry, the pattern here is A, B, C, D, and then back down, C, B, A. Let me show this to you. On the end is A, verse 18 God pardons iniquity, and in verse 19, he casts our sins into the depths of the sea. Then, the next step up, in verse 18, God passes over transgression, and in verse 19, he treads iniquity underfoot. Then the next step up. In verse 18, God doesn't stay angry, and in verse 19, he has compassion. And then we get to this item in the center, and that's the heart of what the writer is going for. What is it here? God delights in steadfast love. Do you remember that phrase from earlier? 
hesed, God's steadfast love. We saw it in Micah 6, 8. We see it down here in Micah 7, 20. You will show faithfulness to Jacob, steadfast love to Abraham. The same word here, the foundation of God's forgiving our sins and throwing them into the depths of the sea, the foundation of God's trampling our sin underfoot and passing over it, the foundation of God's compassion instead of wrath is God's merciful kindness, his steadfast love. Why does he show us mercy? Because his love remains forever. No matter how many times you fall short, Christian, your sin is still forgiven. If you have repented and put your faith and trust in Christ, you were forgiven. Now, this is not intended to give comfort to the one who says, well, I've repented and I've put my trust in Christ, but who is clearly not. I'm not the judge of that, and neither are you. God is. But for those who have turned to Christ, we rest in his steadfast love. And this very same steadfast love that treads our sin underfoot and casts our sin into the depths of the sea, this very hesed is the very requirement God gives us in Micah 6.8. What does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to love hesed, mercy, kindness, steadfast love. We as Jesus followers, as Christians, are to bear the same steadfast love that God has shown us in Christ. What kind of God is this? He's a God of steadfast love. What kind of Christians are we to be? Christians of steadfast love. So, what kind of Christian are you going to be? What are you going to obsess about? What are you going to bring to the Lord because of his steadfast love towards you? How will you worship the Lord for what he has done? Here's what God really wants. Be like him. Do justice. Love mercy. Walk humbly with him. A question for us maybe as a church as a whole. What is it that you are most concerned with? Are you more concerned with the formality of worship than the morality of worship? Singing the right songs well than living out God's requirements? Are you more concerned with protecting your image from the healthy confession of sin than you are with protecting your humility through confession of sin? Are you more concerned about comparing your righteousness to the righteousness of others than you are comparing yourself to the righteousness of God? May we all follow the lead of this nameless tax collector, this sinner that Jesus points to in Luke 18, 13. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus concludes, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So church, may we be most concerned about what God is most concerned about. Less concerned about what God is less concerned about. And humble models of God's acts, instructions, and mercy. Let's pray. Lord God, as we conclude this wonderful book, as we see the condemnation of Israel 
Lord, we cannot help but admit, I'm guilty. We are guilty. But we rejoice, Lord, that you are not just a God of judgment. You are the God of our salvation, who delights in showing steadfast love to countless generations of those who turn to you in faith, who trust you to be their redeemer from sin. Lord, would you teach us to be such a people? Would you teach us, as we see your acts and as we hear your requirements for us, would you teach us what it is to do justice, to act rightly, regardless of what everyone else does, because we are not measured by their actions, but by yours. Teach us to do justice. Teach us to love showing mercy, to love receiving mercy, to love confessing our need for mercy. Lord, teach us to love showing kindness to others that they don't deserve, showing steadfast love as you have shown to us. Lord, teach us to walk humbly with you, never trying to protect our own prideful self-image or building ourselves up by tearing others down and looking at their shortcomings. Lord, teach us to walk humbly with you, to grow where we need to grow, admit our sin and our shortcoming, that we can continue to walk in forgiveness, free from the weight of guilt, continuing to walk in repentance daily. Lord, thank you that you are a God of mercy, that you have sent Jesus Christ to be the atoning sacrifice of everyone who turns to you. Lord, we pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, for his honor and glory, for our good. Amen.